0: So today we're going to be in John chapter twelve. So uh, skipping a little bit ahead from where we have been studying in John's gospel, we we looked at the first three chapters in the last couple of weeks. But to get up to this Passion Week story, we're gonna we're gonna look at John chapter twelve today. And in this in this uh, chapter, we're gonna see that um, there are there's really a, a contrast between some characters who either are in the category of believing. Or others who are in the category of disbelieving. Those who have belief and those who are really trapped in unbelief. And so keep that in mind as we go through this chapter together. Uh, This chapter follows right on the heels of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. And it's it's a preview of resurrection. Really, the category of new life that Lazarus gets is different than the new life of our risen Savior that we're going to celebrate next Sunday. Right? So for Lazarus, it's not quite resuscitation, but it's more like resuscitation than full-blown resurrection. Uh, Lazarus gets back the same body that he had before he died. With Jesus, there's this new glorified body or transfigured body. It's, it's a little different than the Jesus that existed prior to resurrection. Lazarus, he's going to die again. In fact, it, we're going to find out in chapter 12, there's some people trying to kill him. They, they intuitively get it, you know, he was dead once, let's put him back in that same condition. But for Jesus, this new risen body is no longer subject to corruption. And there is a new life that we look forward to that's not just a Lazarus sort of resuscitation, but a new life where we are with God forever in his presence and there's no more pain and no more sorrow. And that's the new life that we look forward to. So we've got a preview of of resurrection in the story of Lazarus. Um, Then there's also those prophetic words from chapter 11 coming from the mouth of Caiaphas, the high priest, who tells his his, uh, council of Pharisee buddies this, It is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He means it in the sense of, you know, you need to deal with this Jesus problem and kill him. But actually he's speaking prophetically and he's speaking uh, in a way that communicates to us as well. It's better for us that Jesus would go to the cross and pay the price for sin once and for all than that the entire world, the entire nation, every person, every man, woman, and child would have to perish because of their sin. And so he gives good news even though it's from a wrong perspective. And so here we are in chapter 12. Let's begin together in verse 1. This is six days before the Passover, and Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus Jesus said, Leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. So we've met a few of the characters that we're going to uh, get to know throughout the rest of this chapter. In fact, some of these we only see here at the beginning. But let's start with Mary because she's the one that we meet at the beginning of the story. So Mary, belief or unbelief? Okay, she, she's one of these people to emulate in this chapter. She's in the category of belief. She comes to Jesus seeing him as the king that he is. And in her actions, we see humility. We see sacrificial giving, servanthood. She's there at his feet, wiping his feet with her hair. There's true worship. There's loyalty. There's caring more about what he thinks than what any person thinks. It's really a humiliating posture that she places, places herself in and opens her up to criticism from people like Judas who were there observing this and saying, what is she doing? This is foolish. Who does she think she is? It's wasteful. And yet Mary doesn't care. She cares more about what Jesus thinks than what any person thinks. And really her heart is what we, what we saw earlier of John the Baptist who in chapter 3, he said, He said this, he must increase, I must decrease. We're seeing that same heart in Mary. She's in the category of belief. What about Judas? Belief or unbelief? Unbelief. Disbelief. He's really focused more on this worldly, the material, the physical, the natural things. Reminds me more of the early story of Nicodemus that we looked at in in John chapter 3, the beginning of John chapter 3, Nicodemus is having a conversation with Jesus. Jesus, He thinks he's got some information to give to Jesus about who he is, but Jesus turns around and says, no, I'm going to tell you some things about who you are, Nicodemus. In fact, you can't even see God's kingdom, you can't enter God's kingdom unless you're born again. You need a radical transformation as radical as that time you pass through the birth canal, going from the womb into the wide open air. You need that sort of radical work of God in your life to get it. And here is Judas, who was a disciple at some point earlier in his life, had forsaken everything else and followed after Jesus. Three years he'd been hearing Jesus' words, he'd been seeing Jesus' actions, and yet, we see his heart. Really, he's in a place of unbelief. He's more concerned about dipping into the, the offering bag than about really sacrificially serving the king. What about Jesus' difficult phrase there in, in verse 7 where he says, The poor you will always have with you? Is he saying, So don't worry about the poor? Now, I think he's directly responding to what Judas had suggested. And he's saying, no, Mary made a choice a long time ago to not use these resources to give to the poor. There are plenty of poor people who have needs and yet Mary made a conscious decision to set aside for worship and to save this precious ointment because she had a picture of the true king and she brought that as worship and as a sacrifice. Mary could have done as you suggested, Judas, but she came preparing to worship. What about the crowd? Belief or unbelief? You are pretty quiet. <laughs> the jury's still out on the crowd. They're going to they're pop up some more here in chapter 12. You know, and they're, they're following, but it's because of the, the story that there's been a dead man raised to new life. There's the risk of what, Jesus had talked about earlier in John chapter 2, those who had a, an in, a, a disingenuous faith, a faith that was not genuine and real, and it was a faith based in the signs, chasing after the miracles. Well, that kind of faith is going to come and go because, you know, there is just the, the, the consistent, obedient, plotting times in life When you don't see God working in powerful, miraculous ways and you're just going through the daily grind and the drudgery of faithfully saying, I'm going to follow you even though I don't see you working in a big way today. And the caution that we see in the crowd and in John chapter 2 verse 23, that sort of faith that's just chasing miracles is that when there are no miracles, your faith goes away. How many of us When you really stop to think about it, and someone asks you a direct question Have you ever seen God do a miracle in your life in a circumstance? And you stop and you think and you go, Yeah, actually, I have. But did you think about that story this morning? What about yesterday? And what about the day before? And for some reason, the way that the natural life goes, it's easy for those miraculous interventions of God working in a healing and a provision in a restoration, it's easy to let those things fade from memory and to become, have our vision become clouded by the new stress and the new pressure and the new challenge that we face in this life. And so really it's about worshiping King Jesus for who he is and not in what he does in this particular circumstance that I'm facing celebrate the miracles, give thanks to God for the miracles, rejoice in those, give glory to him, and then faithfully serve him another day, take another step following after him. So the crowd, they're coming and gathering because they want to see this Lazarus celebrity who's been raised from the dead. What about the chief priests, belief or unbelief? Unbelief. You know, we, if you go back to chapter 11, you'll find out more of their heart. 11.48 talks about really it was fear of what Rome would do that was a part of their motivation. Man, all these people are following Jesus. He's doing these signs. If Rome finds out, we're going to have another insurrection problem. We need to deal with this. They have a desire to dominate. The chief priests, a desire to retain control, to rule, to rule. To govern, to be in charge, and even if it means murdering a couple of men for the sake of maintaining the religious authority structure. Can you imagine that? These are supposedly men of God. You know, they've got the Old Testament, they know the holy creator, God, maker of heaven and earth. And somehow they've been able to rationalize and justify an idea that, you know, we're just going to kill these two people so we can retain our religious authority structure that's got us up at the top. How distorted, how tragic, how sad. And in this story, hopefully we can, we can see ourselves and maybe be confronted with some of the warnings in some of these characters are drawn to some of those things to emulate that we see in Mary. And we're each faced with that question, what distracts me from worshiping King Jesus? What, what is it that distracts you from going all in? Is it the material things? Is it concern for your reputation? Is it chasing after miracles? Is it desire to be in charge and I pray for you today and I ask you as well to make this your prayer. To say, give me that heart of Mary to see Jesus as king and worship him with all that I am. Well, the story continues on. Now we get some more information about the crowd. And this is that, that Palm Sunday story that, you know, that, that we celebrate on this Sunday. Verse 12. The next day the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna. Now that's a Hebrew word for save, salvation. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. That's a radical statement. To be proclaiming on the streets of Israel When Israel is under Roman occupation. And they're out there proclaiming, Blessed is the King, the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. Just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your King is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. This is a quote from Zechariah 9 the second to last book of the Old Testament. If you go back and read that chapter of Zechariah, it's a chapter about deliverance and restoration and freedom, blessing, hope, and joy for God's people. It's really that that salvation hope that Israel had at this time in history. Not just a, you know, like today when we think about salvation, we mostly think about how can I as an individual go to heaven? It's really different from the Jewish expectation of salvation that you'll see more if you read there in Zechariah chapter 9. Salvation for them was return the return of God's people to the promised land, the return from exile, which would entail forgiveness of sin. The reason they were in exile to start with was because of their sin. God allowed them to be punished by foreign pagan nations. So those are two parts of their idea of salvation. Forgiveness of sin and return from exile. And really the other two components are the return of the one true God to Zion. That God and worship of that one true maker of heaven and earth could be reestablished there in Jerusalem. And finally, the return of a king, a descendant of David to the throne of Jerusalem. And Jesus is bringing to fulfillment all those hopes and expectations, but in an even bigger way than Israel could have ever imagined. Not just a freedom from exile to Rome, but a freedom for all people from the exile to sin. The restoration of worship of the one true God, not just for Israel, but for every tongue, tribe, and nation. Forgiveness, hope, a descendant of David, hailed and exalted, lifted up, glorified as the king. His name is Jesus for everyone to see for all of time. And so all of these hopes are being fulfilled and it's, it's symbolized as Jesus walks into Jerusalem or is riding into Jerusalem on a, a donkey. That, that's a, that's a, the beast that would carry a king in the Old Testament. They didn't come on a horse, they came in on a donkey. And so Jesus is coming in and says in verse 16, his disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Some more of the characters here in this passage that we've read. What about the crowd? What's your, what's your verdict now, belief or unbelief? He's still pretty quiet on that one. He kind of, okay, okay. Uh, a a qualified belief, okay? They're following after him, they're coming. But again, there is that cautionary verse there, verse 18, the reason why they went out to meet him was because they heard that he'd done this sign. There's still that caution and that warning. Are they just following the miracles or are they really worshiping Jesus as the king that he is despite what they can get out of it, okay? Is it about me or is it about him? What about the disciples? Belief or unbelief? Belief. I I think belief. I think you're right. I, I find hope in verse 16. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But they eventually did. When he was glorified, there was a growing belief. It reminds me of the man in Mark 9 whose son needed to be delivered from demonic possession. And he he prayed a simple prayer. I believe, help my unbelief. That's a good heart posture for a disciple. To say, Lord, this is where I am today. There is belief. I worship you as the king. I've got some unbelief. Help me deal with it. And there is That already not yet aspect of God's kingdom and of those who are subjects of God's kingdom. We're growing. We're growing in our faith and our belief. We're dying to that old self and living in this new life. There's still parts of our hearts that get pulled back to that old way of thinking. And like Judas, we might be looking at that money bag or what's in it or what it symbolizes and be tempted by this worldly concerns. And yet the call to a disciple is to each day surrender more, each day grow in faith and knowledge to see Jesus as he truly is. We're called to walk by faith and not by sight. There is a story in the Old Testament in the book of Daniel of three men who took a stand against the evils of this world. Their uh, their names are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. (laughs) <laughs> Had to get that one in there. The three guys, right? And those, guys, those three guys in the Old Testament, when, when the king said, uh, I'm going to make a, a golden statue and that's going to be the new God. I'd like you all to bow down and worship this God. These three men said this in Daniel chapter 3. Our God is able to deliver us both from the fiery furnace that you're threatening us with and also from your hand. But if not, be it known to you, O King, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. We have faith that God can do a miracle and save us right now today. But even if he doesn't, we're still walking by faith. And we'll go to our death, worshiping him for who he is because we see him as he is We don't just look to the works of his hands, his miracles and the signs. And the disciples were growing in this obedient faith, this genuine faith. They were not just among those who followed because they had heard of the, the signs and the miracles that Jesus performed. The Pharisees are, at the end of this story, not real happy about what's happening. But there is a prophetic ring to that last verse. Look, the world has gone after him. It's interesting in the Gospels how truth comes from unexpected sources at times. From those who you know, really don't have eyes to see themselves proclaiming truth. The Pharisees are exactly right. This is the king not just of Israel. This is the king of the whole world. And that really is fulfilled in the next verse, verse 20. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. Okay, Greek would be the opposite of Israelites, right? So this is this is the rest of us who are not of Jewish ancestry. Okay, Gentiles, Greeks, pagans, worshipping all kinds of different gods. And the Greeks are among those who are going up to worship at the feast. And they come in verse 21 to Philip, one of Jesus' disciples who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and they asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Interesting progression there. Why didn't these Greeks just go straight to Jesus? And say, hey, we're we're here to uh, find out who you really are and to worship you. But there's this whole sequence, right? They go to Philip first. Philip doesn't go straight to Jesus and say, Jesus, there's some Greeks asking me who you are and how to follow you and put faith in you. I'd like to introduce them to you and you to them. He goes and finds another disciple, Andrew, and he gets him involved. And then together they go to Jesus. Have you ever had this story play out in your life where God just tees it up for you? You know, the masters are going on right now. There we go. Get a golf metaphor in there. And he tees it up for you. And somebody comes to you and says, you know, I'm just, I've got some real questions about eternity and reality and life. And you're you're a religious person, right? You know, can you tell me who this Jesus is? And they didn't go directly to Jesus themselves. They came to you as a follower of Jesus. Perceiving in you someone who would know something about Jesus and be able to give them some truth. And then maybe you go find another brother or sister in Christ, another disciple. And you say, "Hey, I'm kind of excited but not quite sure what to do here. Can you help me? And then together, that opportunity to bring this person to Jesus so they can see him as he is and meet him face to face. I hope this story is repeated in your life and in your circumstances because there's a neighbor two houses up who's in this very place right now and you're the disciple in their world that can point the way to Jesus bring somebody else with you say would you help me love my neighbor by bringing them to Jesus or the coworker or the classmate or the family member When someone says, sir, we wish to see Jesus, drop whatever else you're doing because it pales in comparison to the importance of this moment. And so when they came to Jesus, Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life will lose it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. When, when you see the word hate in, in the scriptures, it's, it's uh, used a bit differently from how we use hate. So to, if you were to say, you know, I hate someone, it's actually a, a, a more of an active verb in English. Like you actually wish ill upon someone. You want bad stuff to happen to them. It's an active emotion. In the Bible, in both Hebrew and in Greek, it has a bit of a different connotation. So love in Scripture is connected with the ideas of being chosen. Uh, Other words would be being elected, being called out. So God has love for his chosen people, Israel. He has love for those that he uh, predestines or elects to call to himself. Hatred is the exact opposite of that. So it's unchoosing. Unelecting, unappointing, uh, there's a verse uh, in, in uh, Malachi, the beginning of Malachi, where God says, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. And all God is saying is, I chose Jacob, I didn't choose Esau. He's not saying, I want Esau to be miserable and to suffer. So here, as Jesus, think about that connotation as Jesus is saying, Whoever loves his life loses it. If you choose to make your life all about your life, you're going to lose your life. You're going to miss out on what it is to really live. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If you go the opposite way and you go, I don't choose to make this life about this life. That's the exact secret to really tasting what eternal life is all about. It's not that we should go through life. Jesus isn't saying, you know, a self-destructive view on this life, not that active sort of hatred where I just wanna, you know, I wanna flagellate myself with a, you know, with some scourges and, you know, crawl up, bloody my knees, crawling up some cement steps and just be as absolutely miserable as I can in this life. People have distorted this teaching in that way. But Jesus is saying, which one do you choose? Do you choose to live for this worldly things? We just saw an example in Judas. Or are you in the category of genuine faith, like we see in Mary, who goes all in and says, you know, it's, it's more about worshiping the king than it is even about the practical need of caring for the poor. Where's our heart? And Jesus speaks to that issue. And then in verse 27, he continues on. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. There's a lot packed into that passage. We're not going to have time to fully unpack today. But, but I'll ask you once again, the crowd, belief or unbelief? You know, kind of mixed again, right? You know, There seems to be some genuine inquiry and yet there's a mixed response there in the crowd. Even when they hear an audible voice of God saying, I, glori- I have glorified my son and I'm going to glorify him again. There's still some that are going, I think that was thunder. You know, there's a mental disconnect from what I just experienced and so I'm going to have to explain that by saying it was just some thunder. Others are going, no, I think it was a, it was a messenger from God. It was an angel. And then even in the dialogue with Jesus as he's helping to explain what has happened and what will happen, there are those in the crowd who are you know, almost antagonistic toward Jesus. Oh, really? Well, how can you say? And you get that accusatory tone there in verse 34. There's judgment coming that Jesus speaks of. And we had a preview of that in chapter 3 as well, where it says, This is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Jesus is calling his followers to live the cruciform life as he did. He lived for the glory of God, he died to self, he died to this worldly goals and instead lived all in for God's glory and living sacrificially for others. And so he's both modeling this by his example, he's teaching this in his words, and he's making it possible by his death on the cross. And he's calling his disciples to that same cruciform life, and that includes you and I here today. Now, before you are too hard on these people that we've read about here in this story, I think it's, it's good for, to take time for personal reflection and to take a look at our own hearts. Hold that mirror up. You know, we look at them and we go, how could they hear a voice from heaven and still remain in disbelief? And I, I wonder which of these issues that we've, touched on here that this passage has touched on are relevant to your own faith story. You know, maybe you're in that category of forgetting God's mighty works in your own life and it's faded from memory and you need to take some time to give thanks and to be grateful and to confess and testify and say, no, there is a God. Here's what happened in my life. Maybe you're in the category that we're going to find out here in just a a bit in in the passage that follows about having more of a fear of man than a fear of God. Maybe there's some fear of losing out on the praise that comes from other created beings around us. When... When if you really held out, you'd get the praise that comes from the only voice that really matters. And so Jesus is teaching the crowds. And here's the really tragic part that comes up next, the end of verse 36. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself. And though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, Many, even of the authorities, believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. I, I grabbed my wife's Bible off the off the bedstand this week and, and read that. Uh, in, her, in her Bible, in her version, and she had written in the margin, how tragic. I think, I think that's the best way to, to summarize this verse. How tragic that they would believe in Jesus, but out of fear of man and out of desire for human praise, not confess their faith in Jesus. And what a warning and a caution to us. Don't be too hard on them. I won't ask you to raise your hand today, but I'll ask you to really contemplate and think. Have you been there where you've been more concerned about what people think about you than what God thinks about you? And even though you believe in Jesus, you've been reticent to confess it, to actually open your mouth and speak and, and proclaim He is the King. And this problem that you've just shared with me, friend, there's only one place of hope, there's only one answer. Let me introduce you to Jesus. But you've held back because of fear of what might happen to that relationship, because you'd rather go after human praise than having your heavenly father say, Well done, good and faithful servant. And there's a caution to us who are right in the middle of this discipleship faith story. We're in the same category as the guys in verse 16. We don't fully understand these things at first, but as we see Jesus glorified, it becomes clear. And and those disciples immediately thereafter, God said, I have glorified him. I will glorify him again. Glorification is all wrapped up in Jesus being lifted up. A double or triple meaning there. He's lifted up on a cross, literally. He's exalted and glorified by God. And he's risen from the dead. He's raised up in that way as well. So really the the crucifixion, glorification, resurrection all wrapped up together in that word glorify here in John's Gospel. If you've seen Jesus as he is the risen Savior, believe, confess, make him known, bring the truth to those who are walking in darkness. They won't find hope in any other place. And neither will you or I. Jesus finishes out with this teaching, the end of the chapter. Jesus cried out and said, whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day, for I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has has himself given me a commandment, what to say. And what to speak and I know that his commandment is eternal life what I say therefore I say as the father has told me I hope you can hear the good news mixed in with the bad news in that story the bad news is there is a coming day of judgment the good news is that wasn't the point of Jesus coming he didn't come with condemnation and judgment he came with salvation and light, eternal life. That's the good news. And there is a receiving that's required. Receiving him as king, receiving his words, those themes that we've seen here. And the challenge to us is to make sure we're in that category of genuine faith that as we look at the material, this worldly, natural things, the my life category, that we put that in second place and exalt him and glorify him and make him known, grow in our knowledge of who he is and our surrender to him. And this Passion Week, let's give thanks for his life, his death, his resurrection, the light that he brings to us, that hope of new life. Can we stand together in his presence today? Lord Jesus, today we do acknowledge you as our King. We give you thanks and praise for your finished work on the cross. You are loving and good and kind and gracious. You are holy and awesome and powerful and just. We we worship you as you are. We do celebrate and give thanks for the ways that you've worked in our individual lives, our families, for those miraculous stories of new life and healing, And provision. But God, even in the days when we suffer and when we endure endure hardship, we worship you because of who you are, not because of what you've done for us. We want to be in the category of those who have genuine belief, genuine faith in you. And God, like Mary, give us that heart that saves up of our resources, of our energies, of our time and then extravagantly pours it all out upon you in worship and in humility and in servanthood. We thank you, Lord. We pray this week that you would help us to be prepared when you bring people our way who are asking, how can I find Jesus? And you open those doors for us that we'd point the way to you. That we wouldn't fear man, that we wouldn't seek human praise, but we'd seek to do your will and to bring glory to you.